Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. I'm delighted today to have uh, a buddy, Chris Kalenda, with me. Uh, Chris helps extraordinary CEOs and consultants achieve big goals the simplest way possible. That's pretty admirable. Uh, he also is very active with um, causes like um, uh, the Fallen Hero Honor Ride, which he rode for 1,700 miles, believe it or not, wounded warriors and so forth. A West Point graduate, internationally renowned combat leader, and a retired Army colonel, he was a trusted advisor to three four-star generals and two secretaries of defense. He became the first American to have both fought the Taliban as a commander in combat and negotiated successfully with them in peace talks. His unique warrior diplomacy has been featured in the New York Times bestselling books, including The Outpost by Jake Tapper. His contributions have also been cited in newspapers and on television. Chris, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Alan. Uh, So let me ask you a a question here uh, in terms of background. You uh, retired as a full colonel. Uh, What was your progression? Uh, You went to West Point. Uh, and so, were you? Did you? Was it a typical promotional progression up the ranks? How did that look? Well, yeah, the army had a sense of humor, so they they kept uh, promoting me for a while. Now, uh, I what after graduating from West Point, I, I was this is during the Cold War, so I was on the on a border cav regiment between east in the on the east west German border. So it was fascinating being able to look across the border and see. A completely different world. What year was that? And this was 1988 to 1991. See a completely different world, a world in which people are are imprisoned inside their own country. The, there is a series of, of fence lines with mines in between them, guard dogs and and soldiers designed to prevent people from leaving. And and after the the, the wall came down. And the fence opened up between the two countries. You got to see what a life was like in the East. And it was, I, it was, it was striking um, how, how different things were over there. You know, when the wall came down, there was a big movement to place all those guard dogs. They were basically German shepherds. Right. We found out that the dogs were absolutely lovable. They were fake. In other words, they weren't really vicious dogs. They were just there to give the impression. Right. Yeah. It, it was East Germany. It was it was the classic sort of Potemkin village in many uh, in many respects, where you had a facade, especially in East Berlin. You had a bit of a facade of modernization, a bit of a facade of of a high quality of life, but but behind that was absolute demoralization. So that was a that that was a life lesson for me, and and then I was served as a captain company or troop troop level commander about that's about 135 leading about a group of 135-140 troopers i was then selected to go teach at west point in the history department so they sent me to university of wisconsin for graduate school uh, to get a master's degree in modern european history then i taught there and and then went back into the to the field various assignments until i was leading a group of about 800 paratroopers in 
Eastern Afghanistan in 2007 and eight in a 15 month deployment. And then from then, we became, I think, the first and only unit in 20 year history of the war to have fought a or to have motivated a large insurgent group to stop fighting and switch sides. Mm. And so that came to the attention of some folks. So that's how I wound up with being a senior advisor to the various four star generals in Afghanistan and being the secretary of defense's personal representative in the talks with the Taliban. When you did that, did you give up your army rank or were you a civilian or were you still an officer? I did. I had these two once in a lifetime opportunities, take a senior command in the army. I'd been selected for a for a uh, brigade level command or to represent the Department of Defense in these talks with the Taliban. And I thought the first one would be a lot more fun. The second one, if I could help bring a successful conclusion to a war, then that's probably how I could better serve. So I did that for about two and a half years. It was absolutely fascinating sitting across the table from the from the Taliban, understanding their their point of view, seeing our own dysfunction and the frustrations involved with that. And th- these talks were in 2011 to, and to 2013. They eventually collapsed and and the war went on for another another eight years until. Yeah, things went to into disaster in 2021. So. A lot of missed opportunities in Afghanistan along the way. You you know some of this, but uh, there's a unique um, connection in some of this with with me because in 1963 I was in Berlin as sort of a traveling exchange student, and the Russian and American tanks were about a hundred yards apart with live rounds in there. You know, um, and and it, Potemkin village is such a great way to describe that. And of course, the other thing is my father was in the first parachute regiment ever formed. I think the 501st to 503rd, and they jumped in New Guinea. So, yeah, it's the 503rd, which which then later became a part of the 173rd Airborne, which was the unit I was with. I didn't know that. <laughs> so if let's take a look at um, the lessons, because right now you deal with leadership to a great extent. Besides your charity work, you deal with leadership. And right. like uh, as I said in the introduction, with outstanding uh, consultants and leaders, what are the major lessons you learned in the military that you found were transferable to helping people in business? Well, the first one is I don't think there, there's no such thing as military leadership. <laughs> okay, so for, I, you need to explain that one. <laughs> well, it's just there's just leadership, and it's applied in different contexts. So the military is a different context than than business. But you're still dealing with some of the the major challenges of how do you inspire people to contribute their best to the organization's success? That's what the military wants out of its leaders. That's what business wants its leaders to do. And, And so you're dealing with people, you're dealing with organizations, you're dealing with culture, you're dealing with strategy. They may look a bit different in various contexts, but a lot of the principles are very much the same. So translating those from military into business or nonprofit has been, is, is one of the big challenges, but yeah, there's no such thing as military leadership as a, as an entity in and of itself. Well, I I think you'd agree that there's such a thing, regardless of where you are as good leadership and poor leadership, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So 
Are there any things that you learned in the military that uh, that uniquely work there but could never work in the private sector? Well, of, of course, in the military, you are you're dealing with life and death. In the private sector, you're dealing with with profit and loss, and and so the the stakes are are different. Sometimes, of course, businesses deal with deal with life and death, but but for the most part, it's it's uh, it, it's profit and loss, and so you you get different stakes. How you can in the military, people can't. I mean, theoretically, they could just they could go AWOL, but generally, you're not going to have that happen. A lot of people are are going to they'll suck down toxic leadership. They'll suck down a rotten environment because they're surrounded by the sense of purpose that I'm defending my country and I can withstand anything because I believe to the core of my being that this is this is what I'm going to do. So I think there's a much higher tolerance oftentimes for rotten work environments in the military. You see a lot of the same thing in nonprofits. You know, they'll uh, sometimes nonprofit leaders will sort of play on the well, anything is you can suffer any environment for the for the cause. In in the private sector, people just simply vote with their feet when when you've got one of those rotten environments. So I think that's one of the big one of the big differences. The per- sense of purpose is is very different. And and so how you how you gain buy-in can be you can be very different as well. You do a lot of work um helping veterans. Uh, and um, several people in my community are, I mean, I have ex-Naval, Air Force, Marines. I have my own almost defense force in my community, you know. And, See Space uh, Force there. <laughs> yeah. So it seems to me that um, a lot of, there's some criticism in the private sector that uh, leaders don't get feedback. They don't get honest feedback, which makes the role of consultants that much more important because their subordinates filter things. Of course, in the military, with a, a very hierarchical command structure, I guess you can make the case that you don't get a lot of feedback from below either. Um, do you find that uh, when you help people transit to the private sector uh, who are officers, that they need to have a different attitude about who, to whom they listen? I think they're going to carry those habits that they develop from the military into the private sector, which is why you've got some people who are senior officers in the military that are just a bad fit because they carry those, those same bad habits. I found that in both in the military and in and in the private sector, that the best leaders are willing to and and create mechanisms to gain honest feedback from from below and honest feedback from from outside. One of the techniques that that I used in the military and and I've created a version of this in for leaders in the private sector is every ninety days, it we have everybody let me know what was what things we ought to sustain, like what's going well that they ought to sustain, what should we improve? And and then the senior leadership and I would gather together, we'd take all of that input and we'd say, okay, well, here's what we're going to action on right now. We're going to change right now. Here are the things that we we agree should change. It's going to take a little while. So here's the game plan for that. Here are the things that we're not going to change. And, and here's why. Very simply. And then 90 days later, we would give a report card. Here's what we say we change. You know, check, check, check. Here's what we say we're working on. Here's the status update. Here and and what we found through that 
through that process was people were far more willing to give feedback because what they're used to are these lot huge questionnaires that they take a couple of hours to fill out. And the first time they may take it seriously and do it. And then all of the, the feedback gets to the leadership. And, and then the typical message is, thank you so much for your feedback. We take your concerns very seriously. And we are working very hard to address each of these issues so that we have a wonderful workplace. And then crickets. 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 There's nothing. And and people just start to lose faith that this is just a, you know, this is just a waste of time. This is disingenuous. The leaders really don't care because they don't see any action. Even if there may be have been some action, people don't see it. So doing this very simple exercise that doesn't require um, massive bodies of consultants and, and huge questionnaires, just the simple process. Leaders can get that kind of feedback. And by giving feedback on the feedback, people say, oh, what I say counts. People are taking action on it. People are taking me seriously. Nobody got their head lopped off for criticizing what was going on. There's some positive changes. So now I'm going to take this even more seriously the next time. And it builds massive credibility. One of the, in listening to you just now, one of the things that is very appealing to me about working with folks like you and ex-military officers is a tremendous sense of discipline and accountability. And what I find that there's a, a much lower amount among ex-military of prevarication, of procrastination, of delay, that there's a sense that deadline's a deadline, I'm responsible for this, you're holding me accountable for that. And I think that serves people tremendously in any line of work. I think accountability is vital. And there, there are two, two elements of accountability. There's, there's reactive accountability, which is the kind of how we normally think about it. We had an event, there was a quarterly review or whatever, and, and the accountability is the, the sort of scorecard, if you will, of, of your performance. That's reactive accountability. Hmm. The more important accountability is proactive accountability what happens before the event, what happens before the measurement, and how we as leaders set people up to be successful for, for that event so that 80% of your accountability ought to be celebration and not, uh, not finger pointing. So that's one of the things I work with my clients on is setting up a system of proactive accountability that is shaping behavior that's focused on future performance rather than past performance. The army is very, is, is, and, and in many ways, rightly credited with creating a thing called the after action review, which you have a battle at one of these big training centers. And then there's a review that says what, what happened? Why did it happen? What did we learn? Excuse me, but my understanding is the police have copied that in many cities. Yeah, and 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 it and it's very it can be very effective. The the challenge is that when you're reviewing past performance, you run the risk of getting bogged down and relitigating mm -hmm. things. Well, no, that's not exactly how I saw it. Oh, well, you had this and this happen, which you didn't see, and so therefore, you know, that led to that led to X, Y, and Z. 
the nice thing about the proactive accountability shaping future behavior, focusing on that is you can't relitigate the future. <laughs> right. You know, so so spend less time um sort of churning about past performance and move very, very quickly into into uh improving future performance. Let me put you on the hot seat here for a moment. Uh there's a much higher proportion of general officers today and high ranking officers. Uh, than there was even in World War II uh, or the Civil War or any place else. Uh, yet this is a time of automation and um, drones and electronic warfare and so forth. But there's a much higher percentage. Uh, and I've always felt that there is too high a percentage of high-level executives and businesses. You know, the, there, were, there was no management until the Industrial Revolution, which said, okay, now we need somebody to not just work on the line, but somehow control all these workers. Uh, so what's your feeling about this? Do you feel that the military has become top-heavy? And do you feel that business is perhaps top-heavy? Or or these people are needed today because of the nature of the work? Well, it's naturally, it's a bit of both. Where I, I'm, I'm reading a, a historical fiction on Theodore Roosevelt. It's written by Jeff Shara, who's done a lot of Civil War historical fictions. And he's talking about Teddy Roosevelt, who's assistant secretary of the navy at the start of the spanish-american war i mean this guy is as the assistant secretary of the navy he's like issuing a lot of orders he's got he's got uh commodore dewey who's out in the far east and and this is all happening by just a lot of people's good judgment you're you're relying on people's good judgment today that commodore dewey would be like a four-star general or something like that. We'd only, we'd only, uh, you know, we, we keep populating generals and flag officers, admirals in, in these different places. And, and as you've seen, the military's grown more top heavy. Part of it reflects just the, just the complexity of, of the modern world. I mean, when, when we were transitioning into World War II, we're mainly a frontier constabulary force in 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 many respects. We had massive drawdown after the First World War. George Patton, I think, was a lieutenant colonel for something like, I don't know, 20 years. Eisenhower the same way. I mean, just that's just what you what you did. And and then when we had to expand, of course, then they they fleeted up into into senior officer ranks. Now we have generals that are and flag officers that are responsible for um, joint services, multi-domain, uh, and that's just jargon for <clears throat> instead of just being in charge of army forces, you have army, air force, navy, marines, etc., all under sort of one umbrella. And there's also an aspect of this where it, it's sort of like a flag officer arms race, <laughs> where where. The United States have people at certain levels, and then maybe our NATO allies <clears throat> would have people at that level or higher. And if the American flag officer is responsible for for coordinating all that, well, you can't have this somebody junior in rank responsible for somebody in senior rank, even though they're of a different country. So you get a bit of the the arms race effect going on, and 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 so you see a lot of militaries that become very top heavy as a as a result of this sort of arms race 
where you do um, what I call, and maybe you call them the same thing, battlefield uh, webinars. Uh, and you take people uh, to Antietam or Gettysburg and you explain what happened there and then you meet afterwards and so forth. Now, tell me a little bit about that, uh, why you do it and what people's reactions are to these things. Oh, battlefields are wonderful leadership laboratories because you know what happened there. I mean, we have recorded history. There's no such thing as a whitewashed case study in a in a battlefield. So you know, th there are a lot of different interpretations of what happened, and that's that's part of the fun. Uh, but the point of going to the battlefield is not so much to nerd out on the history, but it's to it's to use the history as a way of illuminating the present, use the past to illuminate the present, and get people to think about the future. For instance. We'll go to a place, I'll just pick out Gettysburg. When you go to Gettysburg, you'll see a lot of leaders on horseback. And so we'll talk about leaders on horseback and what that all means. And the reason why so many leaders were on horseback is not because they were privileged or, or lazy, too lazy to walk. It was because at some level they could see better because you're six feet higher, five feet higher than everybody else. You can see a little bit better. But the main reason is that they were the most vulnerable person on the battlefield. Yeah, they were the biggest target. The highest level of fatality among officers in the Civil War were brigadier generals. Right on. And they're on horses. So if yeah. you're on a horse, everybody's shooting at you. Yeah. So, so, so the, follow me. Right? Right. If I can do my job in this circumstance, then you can do you can do yours. I'm the most vulnerable person on the battlefield. And, you know, you can't show courage without danger. You know, all these talks about, you know, safe spaces and everything like that. There's no courage in a comfort zone. There's no courage in a safe space. <laughs> um, and, and so those leaders on horseback were the exemplars for the, for the values and, and the expectations they had of their, of their people. Uh, you go to Little Round Top, Joshua Chamberlain at Little Round Top, and on Day two of the battle, he was the extreme left flank of the of the Union Army. And if his position got overrun, then the rest of the Union Army, you know, fall like dominoes. On the eve of the battle, Chamberlain, who's forced about 250 people at this point, down from 1,000, was given 120 prisoners from a different regiment and told that, well, you can shoot them if you need to, but you're going to you're going to guard them because they're also from Maine. And these folks had thought they had signed two year enlistments, but they had actually signed three year enlistments. And so there's a bit bit of a drama about that. They they're given to Chamberlain. Chamberlain's like, geez, this is a huge amount of people that could consume my entire regiment. And so Chamberlain could have taken a lot of approaches to this. Uh, his thought was, let me see if I get buy in. So he did the classic things about buying. First of all, he he took care of them. Hey, what have you had to eat? Go get something to eat. I'll hear your grievances. He made sure that that he appealed to their self-interest. He talked about the reasons we were fighting and, and why he needed them on the eve of this huge battle. Uh, the fact that he was going to do everything he could in his power for those who stood up and stood in ranks to, to help them out of this situation. Uh, so he gave them clarity, he appealed to their self-interest, and he gave them confidence that he was going to take care of them. And those are really the three elements of gaining buy-in. You know, clarity about what you want people to buy into, uh, their self-interest, 
uh, what's in it for them. They feel like they're better off and they have confidence that it's going to work. The result was that when the Confederates attacked wave upon wave, uh, Chamberlain's force is able to beat him back. And those additional 120 increases combat power by 33%. Had they not been there, then his position would have been overrun. Uh, and at the at the end of the battle, towards the end of the battle, Chamberlain's Chamberlain's force ran out of ammunition. And he got into one of the great co uh, commands in the history of the United States military. Right. Fixed bayonets. Charged. So, <laughs> yeah, they, they fixed bayonets, they charged, and it completely broke the Confederate attack. Those men who were deserters two days before were now heroes. Now, if you go up there in Little Round Top, there's a monument to Chamberlain, and there's a monument to the 20th Maine, I believe. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think both Chamberlain and the regiment got medals of honor. Is that right? Chamberlain did. Yeah, yeah. And Medal of Honor is an individual um, award. And so he was he was awarded the Medal of Honor. I'm sure there are others in that regiment who were too. And and the point is, I mean, first of all, it's a you connect emotionally to these very powerful yeah. places. Yeah. And because you do so, you 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 learn things. The things that you learn stay with you for like the rest of your life. So in that case about Chamberlain, I mean, we'll use just a vignette as short as what I just described. And then we'll go into, well, let's talk about buy-in. What are some of the challenges that we're facing getting buy-in? And these three elements become a great diagnostic tool for where, where we might not be getting sufficient traction. And then, okay, well, let's talk about some action steps that we can take to, you know, to help, help, uh, help improve one or more of these three areas of buy-in. Chris, I want to make sure that we hit your um, your uh, charitable work here and Sabre 6 and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so please tell the audience a little bit about what you're raising money for and why it's so important. Sure. My uh, mentioned the unit that I led, about 800 paratroopers in eastern Afghanistan in 2007 and 2008. And, and what they did out there was extraordinary, motivating a big insurgent group and a number of smaller ones to stop fighting and switch sides. But all that comes at a cost. And we lost six of our paratroopers out there uh, killed in action. And last November was the 15, or last uh, September was the 15-year anniversary of the start of that deployment. And so I want to do something significant to honor their service and sacrifice. And so that it, I decided I was going to ride a bicycle 1,700 miles, starting in central Nebraska, where Chris Pfeiffer is buried to Iowa, where Adrian Hike uh, rests in peace, continuing east to Illinois, Jacob Lowell is buried outside of Chicago. Ryan Fritchie is buried outside of Indianapolis, and then continuing east to eastern Pennsylvania, where Dave Boris uh, is buried in a place uh, called Minersville, Pennsylvania, and then down to Arlington National Cemetery, where Tom Bostic uh, rests in peace. And we also thought, putting this ride together, that maybe we can do some good with it. Uh, we're, you know, it was 15 years after the fact. I mean, we've got, we've got within our group of sort of 800 paratroopers, we got um, people who are thriving. I mean, they've really done well post transition. We've got people who are really hurting. I mean, one of our best non commissioned officers uh, lives in a dumpster. Oh God! Um, 15 years later, I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And then, uh, so we've got a few people who are really struggling. 
And we got to, um, most of the people are kind of in the middle of thriving. So it's kind of like a you know, normal distribution, if you will, yeah. on the curve. And our thought was, well, let's, you know, veterans, our veterans are facing some significant challenges. Post-combat stress, we all have it. Um, a, you're, you're getting older, so you're entering midlife. So average age is 35 to 45. So, so dealing with the midlife challenges and all the questioning that goes with that. And, and then the struggle to find new purpose and belonging. And our thought is if we can help people find new purpose, belonging, and well-being and help that group in the center, that they're going to pull up the, the folks who are really struggling because they're still in contact with them. And, and we'll, we'll help everybody soar to new heights. And so what's unique about us is it's all about this, our unit, this sense, it starts with, with belonging and it's focused on our 800 surviving members and their families, uh, helping them to achieve new dreams. We've, uh, we've already had four people now. I mean, just to kind of prove the theory of the case, we've got people in, in our different programs. Now they're of course in contact with some of the folks who are struggling for those folks struggling have, have checked themselves into inpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I'm very excited about that. And, um, very proud that, um, yeah, that, that they're doing that. You know, we've lost more now to suicide and overdoses than we have to enemy fire. Jeez. And, and if we can help more people who are at risk, stay alive and to see their lives through the windshield and not solely through the rearview mirror and, and we help good people soar to new heights and bring others with them. Then I think we're doing some good. Uh, where can people go to contribute to this cause, Chris? They can go to our website, sabersixfoundation.com. It's S A B E R S I X foundation.com. And uh, you'll see all the different ways to support us. And where can they go to find out more about what you do for private business and leadership and so on? You can go to chriscolenda.com, C H R I S K O L E N D A.com, or strategicleadersacademy.com. Chris, it's just been, uh, it's marvelous to have you with me today. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you for your service above all. Thank you, Alan. It's a joy to be here. And uh, I, I wish you and everybody, I know when this recording comes out, it'll be past Memorial Day weekend. Uh, but I wish everybody a blessed Memorial Day weekend. Good. And thank you so much, Chris. I'll talk again soon. Thank you, Alan. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.